Hi, my name is Lloyd Sarbelts, and this podcast is brought to you by Liberia, a bookshop by Second Home. In this episode, we are listening to Pulitzer Prize winner Benjamin Moser and Lauren Elkin discuss Ben's recent publication, The Upside Down World, Meetings with the Dutch Masters, which was recorded in October 2023, live in the bookshop. With the company of some of the finest artists known, Benjamin Moser discusses art, life and death with the passion of a knowledgeable guide who dismantles the hierarchical barrier that art can invoke in many of us. I hope you enjoy it. And here we are in this very um, loopy, crazy, Borgesian uh, <laughs> um, bookshop that seems like it goes on and on, but it stops right here. But yeah, so I'm really, really happy to be here to talk about this book. It's a Brilliant, brilliant. Everyone comfortable? We're good. Um, brilliant, brilliant book about a subject that, I, you know, you go in thinking, okay, this Dutch art, and then it's just incredibly wide-ranging. The Like, just one minute we're in, you know, all throughout the Netherlands, and then we're in um, Haiti, and we're in Brazil, and looking at pictures of animals, and looking at pictures of nature, and, of course, architecture, and still lives, and flowers, and incredible people wearing incredibly detailed clothing all the stuff that we love about Dutch art but the th- what I loved about this book is that it's just ha- has these tentacles of curiosity stretching out in so many different directions so yeah it's a book about Dutch art but really it's just a book about art and why we love it and why people feel you know moved to make it and why we want to sit around and talk about it or re- why we want to spend time in a museum you know scrutinizing the paintings that are on the walls how we might do that better so yeah, I don't know. There's just there's so much to talk about, but I wonder maybe if you want to get us started, Ben, with a little bit of a reading, and we'll see how we yeah, go from there. Yeah, except I have to borrow your um, yeah. your galleys here. Um, hi everyone, thanks so much for coming. Oh, you're going to see all my little marginalia. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> um, any like X's or like angry slashes or anything? N- no, um, no angry let me slashes. See. Where? Oh, here we go. <laughs> okay, so I'm just going to read a little short chapter about one of these questions, Lauren mentioned something that I've been thinking about a lot, about why do we care about art? And I think that um, when you're a person who does care about art, a person who shows up for a reading like this, or a person who goes to museums, a person who listens to music, a person who goes to ballet, you know that it's extremely attractive, almost to a point of addiction. I mean, people go crazy. Like bibliomania is a thing. You know, people have too many books. People get obsessed with certain singers. People get obsessed with art in all these ways. Um, But often I've found, as you were saying, a little bit, you know, a lot of the writing, or before, a lot of the writing about art and art history is very dry and it's very um, technical and it comes out of a 19th century impulse to kind of figure things out. Because in fact, people didn't really know what a lot of this stuff was. It was dispersed for centuries. Um, There wasn't the kind of documentation that, we would associate, you know, you don't have the provenance going back 27 steps. This is, um, and so it gave a lot of writing about art history a slightly dry. Um, I think that's fair to say. I'm sorry if anyone is devastated to hear that. But, you know, um, a kind of character that I, I've tried to get some of the life and death, the heart and soul of, of why we care about art into this book. So um, I'll just read something about this process a little bit. In order to pinpoint a location where Jan van Eyck had once stood, my friend Hugo van de Velde hired a crane, parked it in a suburb of The Hague, and hoisted himself several stories into the air. People laughed when he told this story, but I understood why he did it. 
Sometimes when you discover where an artist stood, you find a pile of bricks. Sometimes, though, something unexpected happens. To Robert Cairo's advice to researchers, turn every page, I'd add a corollary. See for yourself. When I stood outside Clarice Lispector's house in Recife and heard the fruit sellers in the square shouting exactly as she had described their shouting in her girlhood a century before, I felt a thrill of closeness to her. And when, early on a jet-lagged morning, I saw the tiny house where Susan Sontag lived in Tucson, I was suddenly back in the middle of nowhere and felt how frantically a bookish girl would have longed for a cosmopolitan life. When I discovered the Dutch museums, I wanted to see where these artists had lived. I wanted to see what they had seen. I started taking short trips around the country. I mean, every trip in Holland is a short trip, but <laughs> I mean, <laughs> um, if the view was unchanged, on a few lucky occasions, I found the country that the old paintings teach the foreign eye to seek. I could see what they had done with that view, how they had modified or elevated it. If it was changed, I would get to see some new corner of the country, traveling as a researcher does, seeing places I otherwise never would have seen, and meeting people I otherwise never would have met. That's how, in the spring of 2011, 321 years after the creation of Meindert Holbema's Avenue at Middle Harness, and this is why I've chosen this a little bit for, for London, one of the glories of London's National Gallery, praised by an eminent Dutch art historian as the finest picture next to Rembrandt's syndics, which has been painted in Holland, I arrived in the small town of Middle Harness. The National Gallery's website told me, quote, the view is remarkably accurate and has hardly changed since the 17th century. Most things we know have changed since the 17th century, but maybe in this out-of-the-way place, the landscape might be the same that Holbema saw. I drove beneath skies as bright as those in the painting, which shows a lane of ash trees, wiry as palms, lining a country road. I was five months late. On December 1st, 2010, along that same avenue, a new Chama had opened. Nobody's Dutch, because you would have laughed. Um, this was a big box store selling building materials. It's like a DIY, you know, um, surrounded by a huge parking lot, the kind of structure that all over the world we associate with the words sprawl or blight, the same kind of building that has wrecked the edges of cities and towns everywhere. Still, the avenue called the Boomgaardweg, or Orchard Lane, was there. With a bit of imagination, I could see the place in Holbema's painting. The avenue at Middle Harness, with the ironic defiance of the most reproduced pictures, reproduces poorly. No photograph can capture the balletic sway of the trees. In the picture, beside the trees in the sky, there's a hunter, some dogs, a man and a woman talking, a man pruning his orchard. But no written description accounts for how such commonplace elements can come together to make a work of such surpassing majesty. The painting is made more mysterious by its date, 1689. Around three decades before, Holbema, an orphan from Amsterdam, who was the only known pupil of Jacob van Ruisdael, created a series of landscapes that were the equivalent in their genre of the magnificent still lifes that showed the loot gathered by the Dutch Republic. The landscapes from Holbema's heroic period have a feature that is hard to reproduce. Their swagger, wall power, <coughs> in museum jargon, can be so overwhelming that one can imagine building an entire mansion, an entire garden, around a single example. These are the works of an impatient virtuoso. And as with Carl Fabricius or Paulus Potter or Gabriel Metsu or the countless other painters who died in their 20s and 30s, one irresistibly speculates about what maturity would have made of Hobbema. But his case is different. When he was 30 in 1668, 
He married and eventually had five children. He continued to paint for another couple of years, but his production soon ground to a halt. Most writers attribute this decline to his taking the job of a vine hoyer, or wine gauger, measuring imported alcohols. Though he lived another 41 years, he almost never painted again. There are romantic explanations for this caesura, and there are practical ones. The year after his last dated painting, 1672, was the year of disasters, in which his country was invaded and its great estates, where his paintings would have hung, were ransacked. Prices for luxuries crashed. Artists were ruined. Some chose to immigrate. Amid this calamity, many might have envied Hobema's civil service sinecure. For nearly 20 years, he busied himself gauging wines. And then suddenly he appeared on the island of Jure over Flaquet, of all places, to create a work of, na- of art that would assure the permanence of his name. And then, in the two decades of life that remained to him, he would never, as far as we know, paint again. The romantic explanations, Hobima is a romantic painter, begin here. Was his personality torn like Goethe's Faust between the imperatives of the artists, thirsting for freedom, and those of the regular man, longing for comfort and security? Two souls live, ach, inside my breast, he may have emoted like Faust before finally laying down his brushes. And then 20 years later, he shows up in the small town of Middle Harness and paints a single picture. It is a great one, as he surely knows. Then he lays down those brushes once again, this time for good. Why this place and why this painting? It was in the town hall of Middle Harness until the early 19th century, which suggests a local commission. But such clues lead only to a chain of maybes. Maybe some patriotic citizen came across a token of the artist's youthful glory. Maybe he sought out the aging Hopema and tried to lure him with a generous fee to the island. Why did he agree? Maybe he needed the money. Maybe he hesitated, fearing that his style was outmoded and he himself out of practice. Or maybe he had kept working in private, fantasizing about going back to painting once his kids were older or once he'd saved a bit more money. We don't know. We don't know what he felt while he was painting. Maybe the picture came to him in an ecstatic rush. Maybe it was a slog a reminder that the work of which he dreamed during his bureaucratic days was, at least on most days, as tedious and routine as any other. All we know is that he came to Middle Harness, painted the picture, and then never painted again. In this story, or lack of story, you could see even more questions. You could see a mighty personality, an individual vision. Call it inspiration. You could see how this personality, this vision, clashed with social pressure. Call it money. Was it a tragedy that Hobema stopped painting? Maybe, for him, it wasn't. Maybe a steady job offered a serenity that art never does. Maybe he had willingly chosen domestic tranquility, and maybe, when he no longer painted, he still thought of himself as an artist. How much do you have to produce in order to claim that title? Do you have to go all the way to the end? Maybe what you needed was wall power. You needed that personality, that vision. And you needed to figure out artistically, but also practically, how to convey them. The Great Museum was a monument to people who had managed to do it. They reached across the centuries and made us feel their presence and see what they saw. How had they done it? What had it cost? I don't know. But I did know that everyone who had succeeded had done so in a different way. If there had been formulas, and there are a lot of technical formulas in art, 
the answers on the wall would not have been so different, and artists' lives would not have been so fraught with danger. Painting is no guarantee of happiness, but neither is not painting. When Hobema was young, his talent may have seemed like a promise of happiness. It didn't turn out that way. The civil service job may have seemed like a promise of an easier life. It didn't turn out that way either. After he created his final painting, he returned home, another obscure widower bound for a pauper's grave. Did he recall his neighbor in the Rosenkracht, Rembrandt, who 40 years before had died in the same circumstances, on the same canal, having pursued his vocation to the bitter end? Whose was the greater courage? And if you painted the avenue at Middle Harness, did it matter? Thank you, Ben. God, that opens up so many questions. I have many, many questions. Um, some of them I had sort of scheduled to get to later, i.e. talking about art history and how, how we write it and how maybe we could write it. Um, and this idea, I mean, so a word that recurs a lot in your book is maybe, maybe this, maybe that. There's a lot of speculation because, uh, you know, another set of words that we get a lot, if you get this right, um, like not much is known about his life. There's this little phrase that you 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 know you're using it a lot, and then you start to comment on the fact that you're using it so much. So I, I want to talk to you about um, approaching this subject as as someone who's written two big big ass biographies. You know, not just like I'm working on a biography of Gertrude Stein. It's going to be like teeny tiny. You did the like big honkin'. This is the life um, of Clarice Lispector and Susan Sontag. So I'm obviously interested to think about how you as a biographer were approaching this work. But first, I'd really like to know, you know, before we get into all of that, how did you decide to move from Lispector to Sontag to Dutch art? Well, actually, those were all happening at the same time. I mean, this book I started writing because about 20 plus years ago, more than half my life now, um, I moved to Holland from London. I was working in London and publishing, and I, I had met somebody, a Dutch guy in New York, and I thought, London's closer to Holland, but it's actually not that close to Holland. As you know, trying to go to France, you know, it is actually, it takes half a day to get there, and, you know, at a certain point when you're in a relationship, you think, you know, this is, I'm either going to do this or not do this, and so, and I wanted to write, and that's another thing that, you have to decide and you have to kind of take that plunge. And it is a really terrible thing to decide to do because you actually don't know what you're doing at all. Um, and especially if you've come out of school, as we all have, you know, you go from one year to the next year to the next year. And, and then suddenly, if you go into a job, you can also have a bit of that continuity and that stability, but you're really throwing it all away. And for me, it was also, it was not only that, it was also leaving my country, leaving my language, leaving my friends, leaving my whole world, you know? Um, and so I guess I was thinking a lot about um, why, I mean, there's certain questions that connect those two previous books, which are basically about the nature of language and reality. So like if you've, read Susan Sontag's on photography, you know that her whole theme really is the relationship between representation and reality and how representation can pervert things and actually destroy things and kill people and how it can also save people and elevate things and, 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 and save lives. Um, and so this theme of how does, you know, representation relate to, okay, I mean, that is, I can talk about that for way much longer than you want to hear me talk about it. But like, basically, I just liked these things. And I thought they were interesting. <laughs> and I really loved art painting. And I really loved Clarissa Spector and Susan Sontag. 
And so they came out of a kind of, and actually all three, maybe something I just thought of now that you mention it, is that those three were all things that sort of were considered a bit hieratic, a bit intimidating to a lot of people. They liked them or they were curious. Like maybe I know tons of people. It's okay if you're one of them. It's everybody. But like who read notes on camp in college and thought, that's really great. Or, you know, they read against interpretation or on photography. Um, Clarissa Spector, you know, who is almost totally non-existent in this language outside of, you know, outside of Brazil. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm kind of an enthusiast, I think. Like, I want people to be excited about stuff. But, like, you can say, like, read this book. But, like, by the way, you're going to have to learn Portuguese first. Like, that's sort of, you know, that's not so easy. So, you know, that's been something I've been working on. I mean, I have another translation coming out this week, you know, um, at Penguin Modern Classics. So these things have kind of just gone together. <clears throat> so that's out of the way. We can <laughs> talk about the other stuff. It's funny that I was really curious to see what you were going to read from. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but there weren't a lot of markings in that in that chapter. It was, you know, very, very interesting, but it wasn't the one that I thought was, um, I don't know, the one that I, that I like marked up the most and really was Which intrigued was by. It's the one on Ferdinand Boll and Gilbert oh, Flank. Yeah, yeah. Sorry for my, my Dutch. Don't worry. Um, but... I was fascinated by the way that I mean the Rembrandt stuff is great, but then we move into these other guys who were who were his students, but then they were not Rembrandt. It was the way that you're looking at these people, you're looking at greatness, and then you turn to the n almost great, the like very very good, um, and that is actually the way that you then get into talking about all these big questions that you say you want to talk about, like what is art, what is an artist, what makes an artist, why do we keep looking at Rembrandt after all these centuries, why do we keep looking at Vermeer, and why do, wh I mean, I'd never heard of Govert Flink. Um. Now you have. <laughs> Everybody else too. Yeah. Thing working, yeah, it's working. So, yeah. No, I mean, that to me, Rembrandt is a figure in Holland like Shakespeare is in England. I mean, he is the he is the sun around which everybody else revolves. But, you know, the it's a little different in the Dutch case because Rembrandt's not the only truly great figure. And actually there's this genealogy that I trace in it that goes from Rembrandt to Vermeer and then it splinters off into all these rivers and branches. Um, but the thing about Flink and Boll that I found so interesting, these are really good painters. Um, and they're students of Rembrandt, and you think, okay, well, he's not as good as Rembrandt, but it's like reading, you know, I don't know, Andrew Marvell or Sir Philip Sidney or something. You think, okay, well, it's not Shakespeare, but it's still good. It's still interesting. But in fact, um, these guys got such not only bad reviews, um, and they were actually in their lifetimes more successful than Rembrandt, but they got really trashed. I mean, really like venomous. And there's this one quote, I'm not going to remember, but something about um, Flink is described as a creep with a skinny little mustache. And you think, and this was like in 1988 or something. You think like, okay, like you don't think he's as good as Rembrandt, but I mean, do we have to pee all over him, you know? And um, and it turns out that what happens is, first of all, it's a family. I mean, I think this is really, I think if, I mean, I've spent some time studying Elizabethan theater and things like that. And you see that, you know, you think Shakespeare is, but actually by the time you read three or four books about Shakespeare, you can read 300 books about him and the same names will keep coming up because it's actually all a pretty small community. You know, you have some writers, you have some poets, you have some actors, you have some producers and some patrons, but basically it's very small. And England was actually much bigger than Holland at the time and England was small. 
Um, Holland only had a million people uh, at the height of the golden age. So, uh, you know, that's not many people. And the ways that those reputations get transmitted and elevated and dragged through the mud is really a big part of when you go to the National Gallery, which you should go see the Franz Halls um, if you haven't seen it yet. Um, You'll see that, in fact, there were so many of these painters and you'll see like just how brilliant they were. Um, and I don't know, I, I, the, 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 the reputation, um, the, the bad reviews are just hilarious. I find actually, it, um, I was at the Tate Britain today and there's a whole gallery of Turner and his critics. And it's absolutely hilarious to see how many horrible reviews Turner got. Um, and this is just, but you know, if you go to the National Gallery, what is hanging on the walls is actually the product of generations and generations and generations of critics and historians. And so it didn't just arrive there. It's, this, it's the work of, of generations of people looking and thinking and writing. Then what's so interesting is that, you know, Turner, we can say, well, clearly he was Turner, you know, yeah. that's why he could withstand his critics. But poor uh, Bull, Bull and Flink. Poor Bull and Flink. Yeah. Well, I mean, Bull, you can still see his house in Amsterdam where he died. He died in this mansion in the center of Amsterdam. And you think, wow, like he did really well. So, in the, you know, but in the 30s, I'm sure you've heard the story of Han van Meijeren. You might not know the name, but he was the Vermeer forger. Um, oh, right. That yeah. was so cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and he was, this is amazing in terms of like, what do you actually see? This is another question I ask a lot. What are you actually looking at when you look at art? Are you looking at the reputation? Are you looking at the price? Are you looking at the lighting and the pretty frame and the like fancy people bowing respectfully? Or are you actually seeing the actual work? And you know, this is, Van Meijer created these fake Vermeers that were incredibly successful and everybody fell for them. Um, and it was you know, he needed old canvases to make it. And so he took a flink, his biggest painting. Um, this, you know, this is a very successful painter's life and stripped it down. It was so worthless. It was only good because it was an old canvas. And so, I mean, yeah, artists are subject to all sorts of dignities in life and afterlife. So that, that, that I hope you, <laughs> you can look forward to that. But yeah. that like fake Vermeer that you included brilliantly, thank you for including that in, in the book. It's like, it's absurd. Right. It does look, it, you said it was painted in the 30s, I think. Yeah. And it looks like it was painted in the 30s. It has this like Italian kind of monumental next, I don't know, to faces. They're just so rough. Like there's nothing about Vermeer in this painting. But this is so interesting because... You look at that, it's fascinating. If you're ever in Rotterdam, um, it's still on display. And actually, I mean, they're renovating the museum in Rotterdam now, but you can still see it. It's like the most popular painting in the museum. Because of this, you're like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. Like, this is ridiculous. And it's so shocking. And yet, people smarter than you and smarter than me and smarter than everybody here loved it and thought it was this great masterpiece. And it was like the most expensive acquisition in the history of the Netherlands Ministry of Culture. They paid some unbelievable amount for it. And um, and so then for me, the question is not to say it's a terrible painting, but the question is like, what are we actually looking at? Mm, like, right. what do we really see? And how does the ways that we see change? And what does it say about ourselves? And what does it say about, I mean, it's a, there's not answers to these questions, mm. but, um, you know, Picasso, This I thought about this because there was this, 
talk about AI, you know. Um, and uh, Picasso once said a computer can only give you answers. It can't give you questions. So I thought of that thinking about this question. That's, that's very good. I'm going to use that when people ask me, what do I think about AI? I'm going to yeah. say, my friend Ben Moser said, well, that Picasso. Picasso said, no, no, I'm okay. going to give you credit okay. for knowing the Picasso the code. Yeah, yeah. You get the footnote. Okay. Sorry, I work with, I footnote. I know, good, good. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so then, so in terms of how do you, all the question, like how do you know when you're looking at, you know, how do you, how do you know what you're looking at? How do you look more closely? Yeah. Um, how do we know when something's good? You you alluded briefly in the chapter that you just read to something called wall power, but you also alternately define it as charisma, um, charm, something that is coming from the painting that's like not just the painting and not just the name attached to it, but some kind of combination of the two. Well, this is that? magical. This is something, so I've written two biographies of very beautiful women in which Clarissa Spector and Susan Sontag and the question of their looks and their appearance comes up all the time. When you interview people, even if you're not really thinking about it, people will say they'll describe them in these really specific ways. And they give an impression of beauty. Um, and actually, though, if you look at them in a way that is, you know, if you're like a modeling agency, you actually wouldn't probably cast them, <laughs> you know. Um, I mean, you know, Sontag is like really kind of weird looking and a lot of Clarice looks terrifying at certain points in her life. Um <laughs> And yet everybody remembers them as beautiful. And I, I, I got really interested in the word beautiful and the concept of beauty because as you know, I'm sure if you want to come across in the art world as stupid and totally ridiculous and uneducated and vulgar, you'll say, what a beautiful painting, right? That is like the dumbest <laughs> thing you can say. And you just, I mean, because it's like clearly, because there's a kind of prejudice against the concept of beauty. Um, but it's something that in real life you do actually come up against a lot. And I think we've all known, I mean, I've certainly, I, I'm, I'm just going to say we've all known people that like, if you see them all the way back there, you think, wow, that's a gorgeous guy or girl, you know, and then you start talking to them and it's like, you know, just like <laughs> there's just nothing there. And then like your interest just vanishes. And we've also known people who like, if you saw a picture of them, you wouldn't maybe think are so attractive, but you start talking to them and you're like ready to jump into bed, you know? And that's something that I think is kind of a mystery. And I think the word beauty gets put a lot of, a lot of weight gets put on this word that might, might mean something else than we might think it means. And so I talk about charisma, wall power, which is, this quality, um, this it's a soul quality. And I think that, you know, when you see someone who might not be conventionally attractive, but you start talking to them and you realize they are very attractive, you're not really seeing their body or their features or they're their skinny or they're fat or they're tall or they're short or they're, you know, whatever. You're seeing something inside them. You're seeing an internal quality. And I think with art, it's very similar. You know, I do, like I talk about Fabrizio's Goldfinch in The Hague, which is this little nothing of a painting. I mean, it's the size of... It's smaller than that paper in your in your lap. Really? Oh, yeah. That it's about work. the size of the book, I would say. Oh, right. Yeah, it's nothing. And yet, it's fascinating to go to The Hague and I, in my little anthropological excursions of being this, like, obsessed museum person, you can sit about three or four meters back on this little bench in the center of the gallery and watch people. And, you know, there's a lot of dutiful museum goers in the world who just feel like, okay, we've got to go to this. We're going to see every painting for two seconds and then... And then we can finally go to lunch, you know. Um, they'll all th Some of these people will swoop past these unbelievable masterpieces. And they'll all stop and look at this little bird. 
And so the question is like, why, what are they seeing? I mean, what you, you, and then you go up to the bird and you kind of look at it and try to get some answers from it, but there's no answers because it's, but there is something that people feel physically, which is, I think it's soul. It's something soulful. It's something from the heart of the person who created it. And that's what I'm after in this book is that, that quality. And then in your chapter on Franz Hals, who I wanted to ask you about, is, is the show good? Because I haven't seen it yet. I actually haven't seen it yet. I'm going tomorrow. I'm okay. talking at the National Gallery ah, with someone who's in this oh. audience tomorrow uh-huh. at <laughs> room 23. Um, yeah, I haven't seen it yet, but I do know a lot of the paintings. And yeah. actually, you know, the, the most exciting thing for the show for me is that they're bringing over the two greatest group portraits. Oh, cool. Yeah. The ones that you write about, the yeah, region. The final, is... when he is wow. dying and he paints wow. these unbelievable well, so I wanted to ask you about Hals because sort of on a related note to the question of charisma, you, you say that his work is so strikingly weird. Yeah. So I wanted to ask about the importance of eccentricity in this kind of aesthetics of wall power or charisma. Well, I think that's a good question. It's a good way of putting it. I think it's sort of what we're talking about with mm-hmm. Bull and Flink, these guys who get canceled posthumously for being too boring, really. They're conventional, they're mannered. Um, and this is a, a, a revolution in criticism that starts actually in England, it starts with Wordsworth and Coleridge um, around 1800, um, in which it's decided that an artist, an artist is somebody like Lord Byron, right? He's kind of crazy. He's kind of, he's like, has a lot of sex with different people in different countries and he dies heroically and, you know, probably at a young age. You know, an artist is original, right? This is the idea that comes out of romanticism, but that was not the idea that was before that. And I think that it is actually... I mean, I'm kind of exaggerating it. Obviously, there's a lot more to say about that subject, but there is something to it because when you look at artists who are imitators, you know, which is most people because it's kind of safer and it is dangerous to be an artist. And it is, I mean, Franz Hals's life was absolutely stunningly miserable. I think he got sued like six times over bread. I mean, it is, you can't imagine the poverty and the like, it was just, it was, it's really unimaginable for any, you know, person in a modern society, um, even a poor person, just how poor he was. And, um, and yet there's this soul. I mean, he's extremely personal. He's very, um, you, you know exactly who it is. I mean, you couldn't really imitate him. I mean, people have tried and it just like, I mean, it's like imitating Vermeer actually. It just, it's completely ridiculous, you know? And, so I think that Hall's eccentricity is what the artist has. I mean, you, you can call it eccentricity, you can call it whatever you want to call it, but I guess it's the, I think you want to see the person, right? When you read a book, you want to know who's writing it. I do. I mean, there is, as you know, because you did this sort of, you know, PhD stuff that I did too, there's a whole um, stream of criticism that says the author doesn't matter. It's only the book, right? We don't care who painted it. We just want to look at the painting. Well, I mean, that's not that human, I don't think. I think we, if we're attracted to something, we do want to know about the person and we do want to see the person behind it. So actually also in the book, that was my approach is, is a foregrounding my own thoughts and taking, you know, you can love them or hate them, but you know where they're coming from. And that's often in a lot of academic art history, that's what I think is missing in a way. Um, I want to ask you about another figure uh, really fast, Jan Steen, is it Steen? Steen, okay, sorry, again, the Dutch. Uh, I I was so 
amazed at the the way that he has kind of sunk into the Dutch imagination that the, there are even like phrases that Dutch people will use that refer to this random painter. Um, what were they again? Do you, do you How van Jan Steen means like a messy house or like if you say to your kids like this looks like a house had van Jan Steen it, it means like clean up your room. <laughs> um, and um, leven in the brouwerij which means life in the brewery which means the party is boring and then Lauren comes in and she's a life in the brewery. <laughs> you know this refers to Steen. Yeah. I love that. That was so cool. So can you tell us a bit about Stain and how why he's so important to Dutch people that they reference him? In they love life? him. Um, and it's really funny because, in fact, as I learned writing this book, there's only two painters that never fell out of favor. Um, I mean, they were criticized and people liked them or didn't like them, but they were always never forgotten. And that was Rembrandt and Jan Steen. And the Dutch love Jan Steen, and I love Jan Steen. But the funny thing about him, so he's known to the Dutch as a comic painter. You know, it is. It's the messy room. It's the father teaching the little boy how to smoke. It's the, like, drunk grandmother. It's like that's the what people think of when they think of Jan Steen in Holland. But in fact, Steen was also, incre- I think he died at 53, but he painted hundreds and hundreds of paintings. He was incredibly productive, and he was incredibly... Um, uh, sophisticated and he painted all these other things that are kind of high culture themes you know like biblical themes or historical themes the stuff that serious people paint but what's funny about it is the chaotic paintings that he's really famous for are actually really rigorously geometrically neatly organized he knows everything about like where to put this color next to that color how to like make sure that like you know that the, the father who's teaching the son how to smoke like his arm is at a perfect diagonal to the pipe I mean, so you see that there's this academic mind there. And in the serious stuff, it just doesn't really work somehow. I mean, it's beautiful, but it's like, it's like not quite as serious as it needs to be. And so anyway, this is another connection between my other work. The word for this, as I describe, I'm not going to tell you now because it's kind of complicated. It's camp. It's, it's notes on camp. It's Susan Sontag. And it's this kind of mixture of genres where high and low are not really distinguishable and there's a kind of mood to it that is kind of funny and it's kind of it's it's warm i mean sontag says that camp is 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 a love of life and you feel that um even in these sort of tragic scenes that you're like it's actually kind of funny you know <laughs> like it's not like when rembrandt's tragic it's really tragic um but not with him Okay, so then to come back to what you were just saying, I'm sorry, I had to make a little petite parenthèse for Jan Steen because I just found him so like delightful. Um, this, I, this, the question of what's what actually is important in that relationship between the work and the life. You know, if we have the work, why do we need the life? Why is it? Why do we need to come to these works and then speculate as you do, or you know, surmise perhaps this is the reason that explains this. Perhaps that's. I mean, I don't know if you've started to talk about that a little bit more. I wonder if you want to unpack that. Yeah, like I say that Jakob von Rausdahl is gay, which who the hell knows if he was gay. But like, you don't really know anything about him. And I think it's really, it's almost like dating somebody. Like if you're dating somebody that you really like, you want to know about like, so where are you from? And you know, what was your mother like? And what kind of food do you like? And what kind of music do you like? It's kind of, for me, that's sort of the curiosity that I had about like, who are you? Because you feel these personalities, this is wall power. You feel these personalities really strongly. They're really, the more you look at Dutch art or probably any art, the more you really feel like how different Hobema is from Rausdau. So Rausdau is his teacher and they both paint like a tree. 
And yet, the one tree is obviously by a completely different person. And you're, you know, you're, and you want to ask them questions. Like, so why is your tree like, so why your tree is kind of cheerful. His tree is kind of depressed. Like what, what's the, like, where are we going with this? And it's funny, but cause you don't actually have that many answers. You know, I mean, these people are very long dead. Um, and they very infrequently left any kind of written records of themselves. I mean, they would buy some bread or something and you might get a receipt that says they bought two pounds worth of bread. Okay. Well, I mean, that, doesn't really help you that much when you're wanting. So I think ultimately when time passes, and this is a question we've seen a lot lately with, you know, does an artist have to be a nice person, right? This is like, oh, you know, name all the many sort of pseudo literary scandals we've had along with the real ones. But like, um, it's a question of like, do I have to like this person? Well, you don't really know. And the, the further you go back in time, and I talk about like Egyptian art, like you have no idea who created Egyptian art. There's absolutely no, there's not even, and maybe there's a couple of names of you know that somebody painted this relief or sculpted this sculpture, but more than that, the farther back you go in time, the less you know about the artists. Um, and so with the Dutch, you know, they're just, it's so funny because like writing about Sontag or Clavisley, you know, th these are people who are, not only alive not that long ago, but who are very famous in their lifetimes. So people remember them. You know, they say, oh, we went to Libreria and we saw Lauren Elkin and I'll never forget it because she was wearing pearl earrings and red lipstick. And like, you know, this is what, and people will like, especially people who are written about, um, you will like Sontag, you know, how many books are there about Sontag? You know, people have written, I mean, dozens, hundreds of memoirs, stories, um, novels about her. Um, so with them, you know, you're kind of left with your sensibility in a certain way. I mean, I guess I wonder about that in my own work. It's part of what I write about in Art Monsters. Like, you know, how much do we need to know about, say, Eva Hesse's life to look at her work? Does it enhance the work? Does it detract from the work? There's a lot of writing in um, Hesse studies that says, you know, can we stop reading her work through the lens of the Holocaust? Like, you know, enough's enough. Um, can we get, can we appreciate the work on its own. Um, I actually don't take sides in this. Well, I probably come down on the side more of like writing, writing, reading Hesse through her life because I don't think that you can escape from, you know, she literally escaped from the Holocaust, but her work can't escape from the Holocaust. Um, so yeah, I, I just, have you, can you think of a scenario in which the work has been obscured by the life in any way? Well, Rembrandt, I mean, Rembrandt was not a very nice person by many accounts, by other accounts he was. Um, and by other accounts, I mean my own account, you know, of just walking in and looking at a Rembrandt, you feel the presence of this great mind and, and soul. And maybe, you know, and there's a lot of documentation about how he wasn't such a nice person. But I think that, like, I think it's a false separation. I think, like, when you're talking about something like the Holocaust, um, you, it's hard to get away from the Holocaust for any of us, but especially for someone like her, you know. And I think that now, um, I guess when you look at something that is also in this book a lot, which I, I, I know I'm looking around. I see a few foreigners here in the room. Um, I've been a foreigner, as have you, for most of my life. Most of my adult life, I've been a foreigner. And when you realize how essential context is, so the fact that I'm from Texas and I'm not from California, much less from Shoreditch or you know Edinburgh or Utrecht or Moscow, you realize I speak the language that I speak. I'll always 
you know, it's so funny. I remember when I lived in London when I was a kid and I would meet these Americans who'd lived in England for 80 years and they still talked like they were from Illinois. And you realized, well, don't, doesn't your accent ever rub off? And it does not rub off because it's so essential to who you are. It's so deeply ingrained, your language, your culture, your history, your family, the street you grew up on, the, you know, that's, and that's all that context that I think if you're a foreigner and you're forced to think about that, like, why am I different from these other people? You realize how much of you is culture too. You realize how much of you is your own upbringing and your family and your, and your country and your language. And, um, and so to take that away from my work, just my work or your work, um, it would be completely, I mean, I'm thinking about like your first book, The Flaneuse, you know, like that is like, that is what that's about in a certain way. It's about you walking down the street and like thinking about where am I? And that's something that it's a, it's a foreigner's question, but it's also a human question. I think it's a question about like, where do we, how do we situate ourselves? How is our work separate from our own experiences? And it's not, I mean, I just, I just don't believe that it's separate for anyone. Do you? No, I don't think that it is actually, and I. But I think that we often. This is the the corrective that I kind of throw out in in art monsters is this idea that we maybe get a little bit too attached to reading the work, particularly for feminist or you know women artists. We get too attached to reading the work through the lens of the life, and we stop being able to look at the work. You know, which is well, a bit this what you're is saying like before. exactly my my thing about context. You know, how much of what we see is the actual work, and I think on the one hand, I am. I would love to strip away everything I know. And I actually do remember it because I wasn't that young when I first started, when I came to Holland, I was in my 20s. I mean, I'd seen Dutch art, you know, you can see it all over the world. But it, I just, I remember really clearly how weird it looked to me when I first um, encountered it. Not, it's because the weirdness is often not in the big masterpieces because they're already really familiar. But there's all these, these paintings that you think like, are these people like what <laughs> what's happening here like who are these people um but you know so the question for me is always like can you really go back to that time where you just see the work and i think that really good visual people can but i'm not a visual person i'm a person I, my thing is 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 language i understand how language works I don't, I, I'm a totally untalented um, painter, drawer. I've tried it all. It's really fun actually to do, especially as an amateur, mm -hmm. because you actually, like once you've done a, your little stupid drawing and then you go to the National Gallery, you think, it's like playing the violin and then you <laughs> go to the Philharmonic and you're like, oh, <laughs> okay, that is a lot better than yeah. my little yeah. sawing on the, on the fiddle. Um, so I think that, you know, you can, you can, I think it brings you closer in a way. I don't know. Mm. No, I, I definitely, yeah, I see that. I've been doing a lot of watercoloring recently because oh, yeah. I have a five-year-old. <laughs> have you gotten to uh, Vermeer level yet? Uh, or? Any day now, it's going to happen. Yeah. Like no, it's actually, but it's just really therapeutic, I, you know, because I, I, I wasn't good either. I had no talent back in the day when you had to have talent in art to like continue down an art path. Um, and so it's nice to come back to it and just, you know, just paint away in my corner while he's drawing whatever he's drawing. Um, but yeah, I wonder if we could come continue a little bit with this question of art history and the way it's written um, and the way that you approached this book. Because I think there's something, um, there's something happening in like art writing. It's not happening 
it's not new, like it just didn't just start happening, but I'm seeing a lot of writing that moves across um, the disciplines of like literature and art and artists writing books and, you know, writers writing about art. And it all tends to be very hybrid in terms of bringing, you know, bring, making it clear who's looking, you know, right. who is the person looking at this work and what, where are they coming from and what's informing them. Um, and even friends of mine who are like professional art historians, you know, who like teach at the Courtauld and stuff are like, how do you think I could break into writing, you know, the kind of uh, books that you write? Like, uh, this you is know, the academic question. Oh God. Always. I, know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I feel I, I was an academic once too. I, yeah. I too escaped the groves of academe to, to write the books I write. Um, but yeah, I think there's, there's something, what you say is, is definitely true that you say something like art history is a question of like some, a lot of it is a question of paint chips and auction records. Yeah. And I think, that's partially true because of the field that you're working in here. I mean, my work on Eva Hesse is nothing like that. Right. Um, but yeah, I wonder what you think about art history moving in this new direction. Should, should like academic art historians start writing like this, I guess is what I'm asking. Maybe. You. I mean, I think, listen, art history, what's really interesting about it, I, and when you go back in time, is first of all, how little people know, as I already said, but also... You know, if you ever have been to the National Archaeological Museum in Athens and you see the Heinrich Schliemann excavations of Troy, um, and you see that, like, he is digging up a bunch of crap out of the ground, and nobody really knows what it is, and he's kind of making up this narrative, which, you know, subsequent archaeologists have pretty much debunked most of it, you know, like the Mask of Agamemnon. I mean, it's better to say the Mask of Agamemnon than it is to say, like, piece of metal that vaguely, <laughs> you know, um, that's, it's like, it is very romantic in that way. Um, but you also see like if, I mean, I've studied archeology span a tiny bit in college, but like a lot of what archeology span was, was digging up pots and figuring out like this piece goes to this piece. And then like this, um, this paint, like first it was like a circle and then it evolves into a square. I mean, this is the kind of thing. And that was absolutely needed because people really didn't know anything about a lot of this stuff. And so art history comes out of that same scientific background. Because people really, you know, it was a need to reconstruct it. But I think for me, the question isn't to challenge that because that's really important and none of this book could have been written without that. But it's to say, like, how do you take the next step into some interpretations? And I mean, listen, Sontag, for example, in the 70s when she wrote Illness's Metaphor, she did not have, she did not say that she had cancer when she wrote that book, which she did have cancer and in fact almost died of cancer. Um, and I remember... And she was really criticized, as Adrian Rich says in the 80s, um, she says it's not the body, this is the feminist question, not the body, but my body. So a feminist should speak from her own experience, from her own body, from her own perspective, and not get lost in these abstractions, which, you know, a woman, you know, you can have like a marble statue of a woman, or you can have an actual flesh and blood woman with real experiences and real, and, and, and uh, this was also the the main argument of the gay rights movement as well is not don't, don't make abstract arguments say like you beat me up and yet after all this i mean i'm now going to criticize my own book but like um we've all seen how this can go too far right i mean sometimes you foreground that your own sensibility too much and it's like you know fuck off like i want to read about franz halls like i don't care about your little like walking down the street with your dog which i do have in my book like um because i really have a great dog and um, and I write about my dog. You know, some people might like it, some people not. But it's funny, like y you know, you're Jewish, and so am I. Like my grandma, I think about my grandmother saying like I, I like not the body, but my body. 
my grandmother would have been appalled to talk about herself. It was the opposite of politeness. You know, a polite person, I think specifically a polite woman, your role in a conversation was to say, so how are you? And someone would say, oh, I'm fine. How are you, Mrs. Moser? And she'd say, I'm great. So how is blah, blah. And she would instantly turn it back so that you actually didn't conversationally or in writing. It was always the passive voice. It was always the metaphor. You didn't complain. You didn't. So, I mean, I think it's about trying to find the balance. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, I can say a lot of things about your, your grandma and how she might have been raised um, and come to think like that. But but I'm interested in actually for a second if we could talk about um, the scenes with you walking your dog, um, because your dog is really cute. And I was very excited to meet him in the pages of your book. Um, but yeah, so like, say you're we can think the same way about writing that we do about, you know, a piece of art. So, so some writer could be, could use like, I was walking my dog and that made me think about this painting. And in some writers, with some writers, that would be like, okay, this is really boring. Like, I don't care about your dog. And sometimes as in a book like this, it works. Like, you it's cared just about my of, dog? I care about your dog. I okay, mean, I love really dogs. But like, <laughs> I, I think, no, I think that that's, that's yeah. we can bring the same kind of, you know, interest in in weirdness or eccentricity or charm or whatever like that holds true in writing as well so it can be nice to sometimes you find work that feels really formulaic in terms right. of the way that it's bringing the eye into the conversation but but when it works it really works and i it, it does help it make it more specific yeah i mean in that case i'm walking my dog during covid and why if you are familiar with holland there are no dutch people here it's funny usually there's a couple that pop up somewhere but um but Holland is a very flat country, as we know. It's really not only flat, but it's carved up into parcels of land because it's in a delta region. And so every field is surrounded by a little rectangle of water. If you've seen the landscape, it's a very unusual landscape. But it's also a very boring landscape to walk around if you're trapped in COVID and you have a dog. And you walk around and you're like, okay, like every lake is a square. Every canal is like... 29 meters long you know it's like really it's a completely human made landscape and so it made me start thinking about dutch landscape painting and i thought like how do you make this beautiful um and then when you look at these great landscape it's actually the same place you don't have to actually look that far to imagine it like i you know in some of them you do but but it's very imaginable um and you think that that just brought me to the inside about what a mind does and what an eye does and how it can elevate and how it can also um it can bring down or it can bring up but i think a great spirit like i was doubt you know that you really feel this great mind and heart um you because you've had that experience of walking through it you can see more I want to keep asking you questions about aesthetics but i feel like i should probably open this out to the audience <laughs> um and then i can come back to them you if people ask me are questions shy about aesthetics you know. too yeah. Yeah. Okay. Are anyone feeling bold? The Netherlands has been an open and accepting society for a while, but maybe not during the period your book covers. What about the influence of women artists and people of colour? During this time, was it just dominated by white men? Yes, is the short answer. <laughs> the longer answer is, um, I mean, I listen, so I've written these books about women artists. Uh, previously, and so this has always been an interest of mine because, like, even when you're talking about Sontag or even the Spectre in Brazil, these are these huge, huge figures. And yet, I think if you've done any sort of research into current, you know, current but modern 
women artists, you actually know that there's still, it's this huge, huge field that's pretty untouched. And one of the things, I'm sure you have it here, there's a new edition of Linda Noakland's Why Are There No Great Women Artists? Um, does anyone? Anyway, which is a book from the 70s, and it's called Why Are There No Great Women Artists? And she goes into this question, which was one of the big questions of second wave feminism, is why have women not produced as much? Tilly Olson says it's one, I think it's one in 12, one in 12 artists are women. Um, and actually Holland was the most progressive place for women in all of Europe. It was way ahead of France or England or Germany. I mean, forget, you know, anywhere else. And, um, and so I have this kind of, this question of Linda Noakland's or Tilly Olson's, which is a big question in art criticism, especially in the 60s and 70s. Um, so there's this great still life painter named Rachel Rausch, who was um, the daughter and the granddaughter of famous scientists and artists and architects. And she lives to be 84. I mean, it's this hilarious. I mean, Rembrandt was 63 when he died and he was considered really old. So to live to 84. And, you know, one of the art arguments about why are there no great women artists, first of all, it's educational, right? They, the boys get to go to the good schools. The girls get to learn how to sew and cook. So they don't get that training. The second argument is motherhood. So the women are pregnant, basically, most of the time. Um, or, you know, for their, 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 if they live, you know, and a lot of women die in childbirth, and it's just incredibly difficult. I mean, it's hard enough now, but imagine when you don't have a, you know, microwave or you don't have a, an oven. Um, and so Rachel Rouse turns out to be this incredibly productive artist and a great artist um, of still lives. And so then the question is like, why does she succeed? Why is she such an exception? And so funnily enough, or tragically enough for everybody else, but lucky for Rachel, she came from a very sophisticated, wealthy family that prized the education of girls, and the girls got just as good an education as the boys. Um, she was wealthy, so she was able to, um, and she was so, she was not only wealthy, this is like the most unfair moment in the book, I think. She buys a lottery ticket for 10 guilders, at some point in her life, and she wins the lottery of 75,000 guilders, which was enough to buy like a whole block of houses in Amsterdam. And, um, and so, and she had 10 children, but of course she was in her studio, you know, she had her room of her own. And um, so it's really, um, it's really interesting to see, it's almost like a negative, like everything that most women didn't have, she had it, and so she was able to develop herself. Um, and there's another story about Terborg's sister, Gesina, who, um, who has this incredible archive. Uh, she preserved the family archive, and, and her descendants preserved it for almost 200 years. And you can see this extremely talented girl, because the father actually preserved all the kids' drawings and writings. And so you can see this girl who then doesn't actually get to develop her talents. Um, she does a little bit, but you know, the brothers get to go to art school and get to travel abroad and get to do all this fun stuff. And she's sitting there at home. It's very sad. I liked her little drawing, though. I can't remember what it was of, the, but it was very the cute. The death, the skeleton. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was very cute. No, she's actually kind of good. Um, you wonder if, if, if you, you just can't say, like, was she going to develop as much? Because some people are talented and they don't develop and some people... I think I think honestly that's one of the strengths of the book that you leave that question or that that's a kind of open question you know why why did this person go the direction they did why did they not go this other way it's you know it's not like this is the story this is the history it's set in stone there's it's all kind of in flux 
Yeah, like we were talking beforehand um, about because we're roughly the same age, and like it's uh, so. I this book, someone called it my male midlife crisis. This book, which I thought was kind of awesome, I loved it. But like, it's actually my male quarter life crisis because I had really started writing this in my twenties and thinking about all these questions about how do, and we were talking about like how these people succeed and fail. Like people we knew twenty years ago. Some of the people you expected, they were totally brilliant and they were great looking and they were so talented and everybody was just, you know, throwing money at them. They're nowhere now. And some people who might not have even, you might not have, I mean, they were fine, but you didn't really think about them much. They didn't seem very flashy and they turned out to be very successful. So, I mean, these questions, it's just really, it's, a, it's, it's dangerous to be an artist. It's funny, that is something that I felt reading this book, that there was something very midlife about it, as I myself, you know, just turned 45. I know that doesn't sound that old, but to me, that's old. Um, and uh, and so I am, I remember what it was like to be 25, yeah. and like, but if I choose this path, then all the other paths will be closed to me. And like, re and I remember, and I subsequently have had many conversations with 25-year-olds, you know, I keep getting older and the 25-year-olds stay the same age. Um, and they all just really worry <laughs> about making a choice. Yeah. Um, but then but then this question of like looking back, you know, that that, that comes up a lot in, in terms of your asking how things went for various artists. Like, you know, did, I don't know, I just found that that kind of attunement to that stage of life to be... Um, really salient. Yeah, well, because that's the big question. I mean, you know, now at the end of the book, I go back to where I'm from, which is Houston, Texas. Um, and I think, wow, this is a fabulous place to be from. It's so beautiful. It's so lush. It's so like, I kind of look at America the way, you know, like the Brits go to California and they swoon, you know, they think like they have to go back to Liverpool or something from Los Angeles. And, um, you know, I don't think that, that many people go to Los Angeles from Liverpool. Well, I mean, you know, there's that kind of fantasy of, of this other life, right? And so my fantasy was coming to Europe in a way, and I go back to America. But then I still remember, because actually it's so funny for us, um, I'm 47, like being 25 doesn't feel that far away to me. Um, I, I, I have a very keen memory of all that stuff. And I think it's nice to remember just how fragile it is um, and still um, you know, when you reach 47, it's like you feel pretty much, you know, you haven't, I mean, my best friend who I dedicated my last book to killed herself at age 38, you know, so I always think about her and like, she was a brilliant person, brilliant. You know, she didn't make it for what reason? And I think art allows you to ask those questions in a way that you, whether it's a book or a song or uh, a painting and, and to kind of take stock of your life. God, I'm really sorry about your friend. That's really oh, wow. sad. Yeah, that's so sad. I'm sorry. Does someone want to ask a question now? Thanks for this talk and uh, both of you being very, very witty. I appreciate that. I'm not from the Netherlands. Uh, I'm, my name is Bernd. I'm from Sweden, but it's pretty close to Netherlands, I guess. And well, so, so. Anyways, I was curious. By the way, I, I sent... Benjamin, can I tell this thing? Yeah, I sent Benjamin a fatherly advice over the email. We don't know each other. I don't know why I did it. But I, I, I felt I, I wanted to <laughs> support your writing. You were a little bit down or something or, or uh, were getting tired of this. And so I, I sent you some stupid advice. I don't, I'm not sure you remember that. But 
It is, yeah. Anyways, my question, I'm curious of your writing process. I mean, do you like to write in the morning, after lunch, at night? Do, do you spend, do you write in bed or by a uh, table or at a cafe? And do you do, I understand you did like 300 fucking interviews for the Sontag book, right? <laughs> I mean, that's crazy. Okay, 600, even better. Do you do the research for 10 years and then it comes out of your ears, then you start writing? Or how? what's, what's your writing process? Um, well, so there's a few. I mean, f first of all, when do I write? I write, I get up really early and I'm all ready to start my day. And then I end up writing emails usually. <laughs> like just paying bills, attending to life in that way. And I, I kind of, um, I, I get going sort of in the afternoon really. I think after lunch, I need a certain number of calories or caffeine or something before I can really do it. Um, and then I, yeah, I mean, I do a lot of research. Um, I feel you have to. I, I feel like if I was going to write about Rembrandt and not know anything about Rembrandt, I just wouldn't, I, I think it's a slight insecurity. I mean, I guess it's a little bit about context as well is that like, I'm not able to just stare at a painting and then write 5,000 words about it. I mean, I think some people can, and like you're talking about some of artists who are now venturing into writing who aren't writers, they're painters or they're musicians or something. That's really interesting to me because I feel like they do have a kind of freshness to it. But you know, the kind of work that I've written, the kind of books I've written demand that kind of research. And I think that the more you read, it's almost like a perfume. You know, you, you, you have to put a lot of flowers into the pot and boil it and squeeze it and you know and finally you'll get something out of it but it's not really a um i i wish actually i wish i had the freedom i wonder if you have that like us also because i know you're writing fiction now but like you know to just go to have the freedom from the research do you want me to talk about that yeah, <laughs> yeah. i mean I, I, it's a different muscle you know? it is it's totally different i mean being a researcher i did a lot of research for my novel right. <laughs> oh, right. um, well my novel is about lacanian psychoanalysis yeah. analysis so i had to read a lot of lacan and then you have to read stuff about lacan um but yeah i i think it's funny i i i said st something really inappropriate on twitter to a fiction writer once about um she was doing like a thousand words of summer do you know about this Twitter exercise. It's like everyone commits to writing a thousand words a day for like the length of the summer. Oh, yeah. um, and I was like, wow, it must be so amazing to write fiction where you can just like sit down and write a thousand words a day. Like I have to read 10 books to write a sentence. Yeah. And she blocked me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and I thought, I, I mean, I don't know. I thought we were just By kind the of way, talking shop. Twitter <laughs> died right before my book came out and it's such a great thing. Sorry, who died? Twitter. Twitter, oh, Twitter. It's gone. It's a fascinating <laughs> so those kind of moments are yeah yeah i know, you know i just i don't know i thought we could talk openly about these things i guess not <laughs> um other questions or comments yeah in the back do you think from your studies that beauty was valued more in the past right well this was a revolution art historically when when didn't have to have that value I, I would love to talk about this all night. This is a really great question. First of all, beauty has expanded. The idea of beauty has expanded. A lot of things that we'll, you'll go to a museum and you'll see wouldn't have been considered beautiful 50 years ago or 100 years ago, and now they are. It's the word that gets in the way a lot of the time. I think that it's very um, 
I've lived and been in places that are not beautiful. Um, like certain places in Brazil where I've lived where there's no art and there's no nothing. It's all just like concrete apartment buildings and people watch TikTok and porn and they have really no culture in a way that is, you kind of think, oh, everybody has culture, but no, they don't. And when you live in a place of ugliness, um, I mean, I'm thinking about furniture, like in Latin America, furniture is often very uncomfortable. Just on a very basic level, you, you, you'll get into bed, which like kind of makes you, you're not, you can't really find that place to fall asleep. The pillow is made of like some sticky, crappy, like, you know, plastic material that like sticks to your ear. There's too much noise. And those places, like one of the many things I've learned from, I mean, my experience of Brazil, which is of like most of my life at this point, that I've learned from the extreme, it's an extreme place of beauty and it's an extreme place of ugliness. And I think that when you're in a place of ugliness, you really understand that beauty is not a theory. It is not an idea. It is a thing and it's a necessity and it's something that we need as people. And I think that you might often, like if you live in London and you have like this great bookstore and this great museum and this beautiful park and you have all this access to it, in a way it restricts, I mean, it, 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 you think, oh, well, everywhere has a park. Well, no, everywhere does not have a park. Everywhere does not have a national gallery or a, a you know, Hampstead Heath or a bookstore like this. Um, and so for me, I've always made a choice for beauty um, I've made a choice to to seek it out. Um, like you're talking about Twitter also, like you can get, it's very easy to like be on your phone, like getting upset about, you know, Palestine, for example, which I am currently very upset about, like a lot of people, most people, I hope. Um, you can, that's ugly. You know, that's a horrible thing to think about. And it's not that you shouldn't think about it. You should think about it. But Every once in a while for me, you know, that's the story of this book is like, I need to walk into a museum and look at a Vermeer. I really do. And I've realized that is not just a, it, it's, it's, it's a, like on a cellular level, I need beauty. Maybe we will leave it there. And if you have questions, you can ask Ben afterwards. I'm sure he'd love to sign copies I'm of here. books. There are books back there. So thank you, Ben. Thanks thank for you, coming. Everyone. Thank you. This is great. Yay. Thank you for listening. I wish to thank Ben and Lauren for their time to discuss the artists featured in the Upside Down World and how we interpret them. Visit our website, liberia.io, for news of future events and book recommendations. <laughs>